Nahum chapter 1. This is a sequel to our journey through Jonah that we did eight weeks ago. In Jonah, we see Jonah preaching to Nineveh and Nineveh repenting. We're now going to jump ahead about a century to the prophet Nahum, who comes to preach to Nineveh, but it's a little bit different message. He doesn't preach repentance. The time for repentance is past. He preaches the coming judgment of God against the Assyrians for their sins. And tonight we're just doing a survey of the book. We'll get into the book next week, verse by verse. But I want to give us kind of a... We're more familiar with Jonah, so I didn't do a survey of Jonah, but this one here you may be less familiar with. Nahum, let's just read verse 1 of chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkushite. Let's start with the biography of Nahum. We know very little about him. There you go. There's his biography. That's terrible about biography, isn't it? You ever bought a, bought a book? You buy a biography, and the first page says, person unknown, and the rest of the book is blank. That'd be an amazing book. We know very little about Nahum. He was a great poet. His book bears witness to that. We know his name, and we have this short book from him. He was probably from Judah, from a town called Elkosh. Uh, the location of this village is debated among scholars. Uh, predominantly, it's believed to be the city of Capernaum, because the name Capernaum actually means, literally, village of Nahum. So uh, I, I take that as probably the most likely scenario. He's from what became later the city of Capernaum. Dating the book of, of Nahum, we learn from chapter 3, verse 8, that he prophesied after the fall of Thebes in Egypt. Hope I said that right. Go to chapter 3, verse 8. Art thou better than Populus No? That's a god of Egypt, by the way. Populus No. That was situate among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea. So Populus No was a god of Egypt, and what does he say here? He says to the Ninevites, Are you better than this other god? And then he says, That was situate among the rivers. Oh, thank you, brother. I like the rainbow one, though. No, I'm just I appreciate that. I'll stick with my daughters for the rest of the, the, the sermon. Thank you, Melissa. He says, that was situated among the rivers. So he's speaking past tense. So we know that this God has been overthrown. We know that this area of Egypt has faced judgment. And so we know that the book was written. Let me see here. The fall of Thebes happened around 664 to 663 B.C. So we know it's after that that Nahum is writing his book. We see this God of Egypt mentioned several times in the Bible. Go to Jeremiah 46, 25. Real quick, Jeremiah 46, 25. Populous No was a God of Egypt and Thebes. Or Thebes, I don't know, am I saying that right? I don't know. It sounds good to me. Jeremiah 46, 25. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saith, Behold, I will punish the multitude of No 
and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and all them that trust in him. So he's pronouncing judgment against this false god. Ezekiel 30, verse 14. Turn there. Ezekiel 30, verse 14. The Bible says, I will make Pathros desolate and will set fire in Zoan and will execute judgments in No, and I will pour my fury upon Sin, the strength of Egypt, and I will cut off of the multitude of No, and I will set fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain, and No shall be, shall be rent asunder, and Noph shall have distress daily. So here we see again the, the pronunciation of judgment against the god No, or populist No. The fall of this section of Egypt happened in 664 to 663 B.C. The fall of Nineveh happened in 612 B.C. So we know that Nahum is writing between 664 and 612 B.C. We don't have a date any more narrow than that. Fun fact, the modern city of Mosul, Iraq, is the location of the ancient city of Nineveh. You may have heard that in the news. If you hear of the town Mosul in the news, that's Nineveh. The modern Kurds who lived there are loosely descendants of the Medes, who were the people who destroyed Nineveh. Talk about a long family genealogy there. Still there today, those who overthrew Nineveh. Who's the audience? Most of the minor prophets wrote to Judah and Israel. Excuse me, Israel. Nahum is a little bit different. He's writing to the Gentiles of Nineveh, the same people to whom God sent the prophet Jonah. This prophecy comes about a century after Jonah's message. That time they were offered repentance, but this time they are condemned for their sinful ways. This book is two-sided. It's a condemnation on Israel's enemies, the Assyrians, and it's a comfort to God's people. It's got two purposes. The same book delivers two purposes. Judgment and condemnation to the sinners and consolation to God's people. Because remember, it was the Assyrians who took Israel captive. And God promised, I'm not going to let them destroy you. So now he's bringing judgment on those who brought judgment on Israel. So let's break down this book a little bit and see the themes in it. When Jonah prophesied, Nineveh had repented. Nahum brings a more pointed and hostile prophecy. Nahum brings this prophecy when Assyria is at the zenith of its power. You need to remember this. This is no small thing that Nahum is doing here in this book. The Assyrians are at the height of their power. And he is writing a book condemning them to judgment. Go back to Nahum chapter 1, verse 12. Nahum 1, 12. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. And in that verse we see, don't we, we see comfort for Israel? I have afflicted thee, I'll afflict thee no more. Rest, peace is coming to God's people. But to the Assyrians, who are many, and who live and rest quietly, judgment's coming upon them. They're at the height of their power. They have no outside threat. He says, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. This was a dangerous message to bring. During this time, Judah was a possession of Assyria. This would have been during the reign of Manasseh or Josiah, probably Manasseh. Nahum's message would have been offensive and highly despised. 
we see no sign that Nahum made his message any softer for the people. You understand that? Understand what's going on here in this book. Israel is part of the Assyrian Empire. They control them. They have jurisdiction. Nahum writes this message of coming judgment against the Assyrians. What could happen to somebody who does that? Death. Right? Torture. Imprisonment. You understand how wicked the Assyrians were? I mean, the Assyrians were one of the most wicked people in history. The way they tortured their enemies. It would have been good for Nahum, I guess, to soften his message. Tone it down a bit. But he doesn't. He writes to them and says, you're going to be cut down. You're done. God's not going to go on anymore. He's not going to allow this anymore. Can you imagine? During World War II, when the Nazi Germany took over so many countries, let's say Poland. Poland was controlled by Nazi Germany. If you rose up against Hitler and pronounced God's coming judgment on him, you're going to lose your, your, your war. You're going to die in battle because God's bringing judgment. What's it, what are you going to be called? An insurrectionist. You're going to be seen as a threat to the peace of the state. They're going to arrest you. People are going to tell you, tone down your message. Just don't, don't be so abrupt. Don't be so direct. Nahum didn't do that. There's a lesson there for the modern church, by the way. The modern church wants so much to soften the message of God's coming judgment. We don't have the right to do that. We are to deliver the message as given to us to the people. And he was facing torture and death. We face what? Losing our job, maybe? Being disliked by our neighbors? Being blocked on Facebook? And for that, we soften the message. We make it more palatable. Yes, yes, yes. There, you know, we, yes, there's a hell. We believe in hell, but we're not going to use those kind of terms. We're going we're gonna to say, what's a, what's a modern term? Separation from God. If you don't turn to Christ, you'll be separated from God forever. Well, I mean, yes, I guess. But Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He didn't soften the message. Better to have one hand to go into heaven than two hands to be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. We're not to soften the message to please the hearers. We are to give the message of God's judgment to come to everybody. You know why? And I'm going to give this in a minute. I'm going to jump ahead of my notes probably, so I might repeat myself, but... The message of the gospel is a message of condemnation to the enemies of God. And it's our job to tell them that. Nahum faced a world like we do. A world under judgment. A world of wickedness. Well, Nahum, Brother Nahum, wouldn't you have a bigger following as a prophet if you just were nicer? Maybe. But there's a message to deliver. You and I have a message too. This isn't the time for weak Christians, compromising churches, and a watered-down message. The world we live in is under judgment, folks. 
already the judgment of God has fallen upon our nation and will continue to fall. We're not even preaching like Jonah. Judgment's coming if you don't repent. Our message is like Nahum. Judgment has come. Judgment has come. And we're over here trying to soften it. Well, you'll be separated from God. Come, give your life to Christ. No, repent of your sin. You're under condemnation for your sin. You understand that, right? People are under condemnation because they're sinners, and they, they need to know that. They need to know that. See, we take that message out to make it more palatable, and so what people do is they come forward in church, and they're like, I want to give my heart to Jesus. Okay, great. Repeat after me. But they still love their sin. And so they leave that church building and they go outside and they put on the Jesus t-shirt and the Jesus bracelet and they go on living in sin. You know why? Because they were never told they had to repent of their sin. They were never, you know what repentance means to leave it behind, right? You can't walk with Christ and the world at the same time. We can't do that. But when we take away the message of repentance and make it a message of, he really loves you, just come and be his pal, People believe they can live in sin and still live for Christ. Well, why, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I did, the, I did the church thing. But you're going on in your sin. To follow Christ is to repent of your sin. You must leave it behind. That's the whole message of the gospel. Jesus came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say, come make me your Lord and Savior. If you do now, that's... Implicit in repentance, you're you're turning from sin and turning to Christ. But we we've softened the message so much; it's lost. It's lost. The message is lost in our modern gospel. It's no longer repent of your sins. Now it's just come do religious stuff, have a relationship with God. You can't. You're a sinner. And you cannot live in sin and live peacefully in the kingdom of God. So you cannot come have a relationship with God unless you're willing to say goodbye to my sin. And we've lost that message because that's not palatable. That's, that's burdensome. Nobody likes that. You know why? Because they love their sin. They love their sin. You can get them to say, I love Jesus, as long as you let them say, I love my sin too. And that, 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 that works to build big churches, and it works to build big followings. But on the day of judgment, that's not going to stand. I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That's what people are going to hear. You know why? Because they work iniquity. Because they've never been told to repent. They've never been told you can't go on in sin and follow the Savior. You can't do both. We need the message of Nahum today. As I said, this is not a time for we Christians in America. This is time, not a time for compromising churches or a watered-down message. This is a time for strong, pointed Bible preaching. It's time for thus saith the Lord. That's our message. Oh, you're doing it. You ever heard that before? Oh, you're doing it wrong. You're not doing it at all, so shut up. Typically, that's the problem. Oh, you're doing it wrong. People, you're not going to win people to Christ by telling them the truth. 
You're out here condemning people. No, no. John 3 says they're condemned already. They're condemned already. We're just telling them that they're condemned already. But there's hope for the condemned already. That is to believe upon the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's our message. If you need help connecting Nahum's time to ours, Paul gives us a great connection. Look at Nahum 1.15. Nahum 1.15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Go to Romans chapter 15. I'm sorry, 10. Excuse me, 10 verse 15. Paul quotes this. So Nahum said, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Paul said in Romans 10, 15, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Paul is quoting Nahum. He's comparing gospel preaching to what Nahum was doing in the Old Testament. Why? Because there's a connection between what we preach and what Nahum preached. Comfort for God's people, judgment for God's enemies. We're publishing good tidings to God's people. What's the context of Paul's words? It's gospel preaching. Nahum's preaching was comfort to God's people and wrath to his enemies. The gospel is peace to God's people and wrath to his enemies. Turn to John chapter 10, verse 27. We read this thing on Sunday. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You guys catch the comfort in that verse, those verses? There's great comfort there. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. You know, there is zero chance, zero, that any of Christ's sheep will perish. Ever. That's great comfort. You got a lost loved one you're praying for? Don't worry. If they're Christ's sheep, they'll never perish. They'll hear his voice. At some point, they'll hear his voice. He knows them. But it's comforting. He knows them. He knows his sheep. He pursues his sheep. He leaves the 99 to go get that one that's straight away. Jesus knew you. He pursued you personally. And they follow me. What comfort. He doesn't drag them kicking and screaming. There's not some who are rebellious and say, you know what? I'm one of his sheep, but I'm not going to follow. No, no. They hear his voice. He knows them. And they follow him. And I give unto them eternal life. Eternal life. That which was taken in the garden, he restores. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. What a comfort. If you are one of Christ today, you will never be plucked out of his hand. We talked on Sunday about losing your salvation, didn't we? That if you're saved tonight, 
There is zero chance you will perish. When I hear the gospel being preached, it's a sweet consolation. A sweet consolation. I remember the, I mentioned before we were preaching at the bus station in Bakersfield and one bus driver got off and he was just belligerent and angry and screaming at us about our preaching. And he said, I'm a Christian too, but I don't want to hear that while I'm here on my break trying to relax. He was angry that we were preaching the gospel. We were bothering him on his break. We said, sir, if you're a Christian, this is a consolation. This is a good thing. This is a consolation to you. This should warm your spirit, not chide against it. If the preaching of the gospel makes you angry or annoyed, you're not saved. It's peace and comfort to God's people, the gospel is. What a comfort. Christ can forgive your sins. Come to him. What a comfort to know that Christ forgives our sins, that we will never perish. No one can pluck us out of his hand. You understand that? Nobody. Nobody can take you from Christ. The devil has no power. The demons have no power. Your own sin has no power. This world has no power. We are Christ's eternally, if we're his, if he's called us, if we followed him. The great comfort there. The gospel is likewise judgment to God's enemies. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I just realized my mic's higher on this polo shirt. You can probably hear me drinking. I probably should drink quieter. <laughs> I heard a big gulp. I was like, uh-oh. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? This is such an important passage. I was working on this at the hotel the other night, and I, I think I woke Amy up. I think she's dozing off, telling her what a great passage this was. The gospel is not intended. I'm going to say it a little slower for you guys. The gospel is not intended to save everyone who hears it. I'm going to repeat it again. The gospel is not intended to save everyone who hears it. If you're confused on that, refer to the last Sunday morning's message. It's a call to Christ's sheep. The goats won't hear. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Well, they're his sheep because they heard his voice. We talked about that on Sunday morning. What did Jesus in that same passage, John 10, what did he tell the Pharisees? You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Not you're not of my sheep because you don't believe. That wasn't a mistake. Jesus knew what he was saying. Goats will not respond to the gospel. They'll respond to the lights, the pyrotechnics display at the church. They'll respond to the, the, the altar call, sign this card, pray this prayer. They'll respond to get baptized and put on a shirt that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. They'll respond to all kinds of things. Youth group and pizza nights and parties and, 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 and social groups within the church. They'll respond to all those things. The goats will. But they'll not respond to the gospel. 
They're the ones who hear it walking by Wilson Park and go, oh, you're doing that wrong. Oh, keep that in the church. I'm a Christian too, but I don't push it on people. No, you're a goat. You're a goat. To the sheep of Christ, this gospel message is sweet. It works in them to raise them from spiritual death and works in them to will and to do his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. To those who are not his sheep, it's the savor of death. It angers them, even hardens them in their sin. It is their condemnation because the condemnation of the sinner is that they reject the knowledge of God. Before I, I want to move on, let, let me just real quickly, while we're here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Notice that first verse, verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved. Period, end of sentence, right? No. And in them that perish. That's weird. Why are we the sweet savor of Christ to both? Wouldn't we just be the sweet savor to those who are being saved? No, because the savor of death is just as sweet to Christ as the savor of life. God is displaying in this world his righteous judgment and his grace and mercy. Both are equally right. We need to understand that. Both are equally good. When we stand one day among the redeemed, right? At the end of time, the Lord's come back, the dead are raised. And we see the mass multitudes over here going into the kingdom. And we see the mass multitudes over here going into the lake of fire. We're not going to look and go, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's terrible. We're going to say, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. Because God's righteousness, it, it, it vindicates, uh, their judgment vindicates his righteousness. He is righteously angry against sin, and he has the right to be. He's a holy God. And so when we preach the gospel to sinners who are not going to be saved, they're not of Christ's sheep, it's their condemnation we're preaching, and that's a sweet savor to Christ. He sits on his throne going, oh, that smells good. Because his judgment is just as valuable as his mercy. And we've got to remember that. Mercy isn't greater than judgment when it comes from God. Both are wonderful displays of who he is. That's so important to understand. I said their condemnation is because they reject the knowledge of God. Go to Romans 121, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This goes for everybody, by the way. The jungle Indian who's never seen a white man before, he knows God exists. He knows. He knows. Nature bears witness. There's no atheist out in the jungle. Whenever people we have never met, ever, no explorer has ever met an atheist tribe. They all know God. They all have a spiritual religious system of some kind. But they reject the true God 
And they make up and they worship these spirits over here or this wooden statue over here or the trees or the sun or the earth. That's why they're condemned. The same thing goes for the Jew. They knew God, but they glorified not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. They began to worship the law of Moses and the temple and the ordinances. And the object of their worship became their own fidelity to the law. They don't worship in Christ anymore. Remember, I quote it all the time when Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips. Where was he at when he said that? He was at the temple. Well, they're worshiping God, weren't they? No. He said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. They weren't worshiping God. The condemnation on the Jews was that they took what God gave to reveal himself and they made those things the object of their worship. We're not much better, by the way, in America. God's given us great blessing, great wealth, great freedom. And we turn those into our God today. Today we worship at the altar of freedom. My right to do with my body as I please, even if that means murdering my own child. You know what? I feel I'm a woman. So you have to pretend I'm a woman with me. I have the freedom to do that. Go to most churches on 4th of July Sunday. They worship America. They don't, they don't see it in its proper context. They worship freedom, convenience. The God of convenience has killed a lot of babies. Convenience. Wealth. Boy, do we worship wealth in America today. Say, you can't prove that, Pastor. I sure can. I sure can. We elected one of the most wicked men in America to be president. And argue that he was the best president because the stock market was so high. Our retirement accounts were so lucrative. Our finances were so good. So was Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel says they had prosperous ease. We worship the gifts that God has given. And what's happened? He's darkened our imaginations, hasn't he? He's blinded our minds in America. You want wealth? I'll give you wealth. Pursue it until you jump out of a window in Las Vegas. You want sex? I'll give it to you until it consumes you. You want freedom? Have it. Boy, pretend your girls. Girl, pretend your boys. He is, it's like Israel when they wanted man or quail and they, they wanted meat and they had manna. He, I'm going to give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils. God looks at America and says, I'm going to give you these things that you worship until you're disgusted by it. The condemnation on mankind is that we know God exists. Even without the gospel, we see enough in nature to know there's a God. Paul says in Romans that we are without excuse. Look at verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That word excuse in the Greek means apologetic. 
Nobody will stand before God in your judgment and say, I didn't know. I'm shocked. There is no excuse. Well, my parents were Christian hypocrites, and that's why you have to understand no, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no excuse. We know. We know better. We see the same thing in John 3, 19. Turn there. John 3, 19. And this is the condemnation. So what's the condemnation? What is mankind's condemnation? That light is coming to the world, meaning Christ. And men love darkness rather than light. The condemnation is that God came to us and we didn't care. What did the Jews say? We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. In the parable Jesus told, the people cried out, we'll not have this man to reign over us. Why do men love darkness rather than light? It goes on, because their deeds are evil. We love wickedness and we hate the light that exposes our wickedness. We hate it. Listen, I'm not jealous tonight. That's why there's 15 of you in here listening to me talk. And 1,500 a couple miles away with pyrotechnics and smoke, smoke effects on the stage. Do you know why? I say, oh, you're jealous of that bigger church. No. Men love darkness rather than light. They are drawn to those churches that let them walk in darkness. And not everyone. There are bigger churches than ours that preach the truth. But in the grand scheme of American evangelicalism, there's not many. There's not many. You realize that in, in Bakersfield, a city of 500, 400,000 people, there's probably one church I could recommend as solidly Bible preaching, standing against sin, fighting the culture. One church and 400,000 people. But the largest church in town is 10,000 people. You understand what I'm saying? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We know better, but we love our sin. I mentioned this earlier, I jumped ahead of my notes, but I'll kind of go back through it again. Second Corinthians 2, he said, verse 15, For we are, sweet, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, and then are saved and them that perish. When Paul said that, he's taking a picture from the sacrifices of the old covenant. When those sacrifices were offered rightly and burned, the scent of the animal flesh on the altar was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, Leviticus 1.9. Do you guys understand that, right? Jerusalem stink. We don't see it when we do the you know, pretty pictures and stuff on in Sunday school, but they were making sacrifices all the time. All day. All night. Sacrifices. They were, and the temple sat up on a hill over the city. The stench of the rotting, burning animal flesh 
permeated the city. To Christ, it was a sweet smell. Sins being atoned. Offerings being made. Under the old covenant, the scent of the sacrifices from the temple were a sweet smell of life for the repentant. You're a sinner. You come to the temple. You confess to God your sin. And you offer the offering prescribed by the law. The priest takes it and kills it and does his thing with the blood and the innards and you're long gone probably by that point, walking back down the hill, back to your life, back in the city, and you smell the burning flesh of the animal you just offered. What a sweet smell. God has accepted through the sacrificial system my repentance. It's a sweet smell to God, a sweet smell to the repentant person. But can you imagine the unbeliever, the unsaved in Jerusalem, the smell of the rotting flesh? It'd be putrefying. It'd be a burden to them. It would seem disgusting to them because they don't see in it the life-giving, the forgiveness of sins. They don't know that. So when the unbeliever, they hear us preaching. The unbeliever, they don't get the life sent out of it. I walk by a gospel preacher. He was some I don't know. And my heart warms a little bit. I think... It's a good smell. He's preaching a solid gospel. Amen. The unbeliever walks by and goes, oh, another Christian zealot out here screaming about heaven and hell. It's not a sweet smell to them because they're perishing. To the repentant in Jerusalem, the smell of the sacrifices communicated divine forgiveness. The only scent that the unrepentant could smell was that of death. The fragrance of the gospel acts similarly. It signifies a sweet smell to those who believe, because by it the mercy of Christ is being received. The message is the smell of death to those who reject it. This reminds us that the gospel, when preached rightly, is not received the same by everyone, nor is it intended to be. I said before, it's not intended to be believed by everyone who hears it. It is life to some who are Christ's sheep. It is death to those who are perishing. But like Nahum, you and I are not authorized to change the content of the message to please the receiver of it. We simply deliver it and Christ makes it life to one or death to the other. We don't interfere. You notice in verse, that verse 15, St. Corinthians, both the salvation of the saint and the condemnation of the sinner are a sweet smell to Christ. He is glorified in both the mercy received and the justice distributed. We don't glorify Christ when we water down the message. John Calvin said, whatever may be the issue of our preaching, it is notwithstanding well-pleasing to God that the gospel is preached and our service will be acceptable to him, and also that it does not detract in any degree from the dignity of the gospel, that it does not do good to all. For God is glorified even in this. The gospel becomes an occasion of ruin to the wicked. God is pleased. The gospel is the ruin of sinners. Understand that. As much as he is, it's the salvation of sinners. Nahum reminds us that God is the God of all nations. 
He holds nations accountable for their sin. He is not just the God of Israel. His jurisdiction doesn't end there. He was God over the ones he kicked out of the land of Canaan the first time, wasn't he? Just as much as we kicked Israel out of the land. On the day of judgment, no one will be able to say that the sin wasn't really sin because he was out of God's jurisdiction. God is God over all. Though most of the prophets carried the message to Israel, Nahum carried it to a Gentile nation, saying, by the way, you're accountable to your sinners. You say, the Gentiles weren't under the law. Then why was God destroying them? For their sin. What does the Bible say sin is? Transgression of the law. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, the moral law of God extended to all peoples. They were just as accountable as Israel, though they hadn't received the law. They were still judged according to the law. God is the God everywhere. America needs to remember that. God is just as much the God over America as he was over Israel, as he was over Assyria, as he was over Babylon. He has the right to judge us for our sins. Let's go on down. I'm running out of time here. A quick breakdown of the book. Nahum consists of just three chapters, with each chapter emphasizing a particular theme regarding Nineveh. Chapter 1, Nineveh's destruction is initially declared. God emphasizes his great power. He sets himself apart from other gods, as Nahum 1, 2 through 11. He outlines his punishment for the people of Nineveh due to their sin in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. My page is right here. Sorry about that. Uh, Look at chapter 1, verse 2 of Nahum. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The gods of the nations are weak, but the God of Scripture takes vengeance. He demands loyalty, and he deserves our loyalty. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. While God rebukes in anger and judges the ungodly, he is also good. In fact, his judgment on the wicked is a display of his goodness. You understand that, right? The judgment of the wicked is a display of God's goodness. Because God is good and holy and righteous, he must punish sin. If he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be good. Therefore, hell is a display of the goodness of God. We've got to stop thinking like we think in America today. The judgment of God is just as good as the mercy of God. But we see here in these two verses both the the affliction of the message and the comfort of the message, right? To to Nineveh, God is jealous. The Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Then go to verse 7. He's good. That's that's the message to his people. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them to trust in him. What a comfort for God's people. Chapter 2, the upcoming destruction of Nineveh. The city will come under attack from an army with shields and chariots. Nahum 2, verse 3. Look at that verse. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messenger shall be no more shall no more be heard. The enemies will enter the city, plundering the silver and gold. Nahum 2, 9. The chariots of Nineveh will burn, and their people will be destroyed. Nahum 2, 13. Chapter 3. Details on various aspects of Nineveh's sin and destruction. 
It's a bloody city full of violence and prostitution. Look at verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1. Uh, that's in 3, 1 through 4. Go look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Because of the multitude of thy whoredoms and of thy well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcraft. The Lord will bring shame upon them, Nahum 3, 5 through 7. Their people will become exiles and captives, Nahum 3, 10. Fire would destroy them in their places of safety, Nahum 3, 14 through 15. Look at that one. Draw thee waters from the siege, fortify thy strongholds, go into clay and tread the mortar, make strong the Brooklyn, brick kiln. There shall the fire devour thee, the sword shall cut thee off, it shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm, make thyself many as the locust. You, you, get, the, 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 you get what God's doing in that verse? He's taunting the Ninevites. He's taunting them. Go ahead, fortify your position. Draw the waters for the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into clay. Tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kilns. There, the fire shall devour you. Go ahead. I dare you. Make yourself stronger. Fortify your position. That's what sinners do, don't they? They just, they just, they get, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of the word. They get their feet set against God, and they just dig in, and they just, they're going to stand against God. And God says, fine, do that. Do it. I dare you to. Go ahead. I'll destroy you on the day of judgment. One time somebody was yelling at us when we were street preaching, I think. I told my wife, let him have his moment. The day of judgment won't be very good for him. God will destroy the wicked. And he's mocking them. Go ahead. Go ahead, Nineveh. You think you're so tough? You think you're so strong? I'll tell you what. Fortify everything. The fire is going to destroy you right there. You're going to die right there. America, you think, uh-oh. Think you're impenetrable? Unstoppable? He could bring us down in a second. If he so chose to do. It amazes me. We take so much pride in ourselves. He says, make yourself as safe as you can. And there, in your best attempt at safety... I'm going to destroy you. Does God mock the wicked, you say? He sure does. He sure does. God taunted Job in his wicked accusations, didn't he? Who do you think you are? Stand here like a man and answer me. Can you bring the, the, the can you calve the deer? Can you send the snow? Did you lay the foundations of the earth? Well, Job wasn't wicked, but his accusations were. And God called him to task. God taunted him a little bit. Can you do what I can do? God taunted Nebuchadnezzar when he drove him out from his throne and made him eat grass like an ox, didn't he? Now, that was also to humble him. I understand there was a humbling and he did come to repentance. But there was a taunting there. Nebuchadnezzar looked at his heart and said, look at what I have done. In my own power and my own strength, and God said, really? You're going to eat grass like an ox until I decide that you go back to your throne. And then I'm going to return you right back to your throne as, you, as if you never left. What a taunt. We see it in Psalm 2, verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That's their plan to overthrow the Messiah. <laughs> Let's break his bands asunder. Let's cast their cords from us. He sits and he laughs. He laughs 
at their attempts to destroy him. Go to Proverbs 1, verse 24. Proverbs 1, 24. Bible says, because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have said it not all my counsel and with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when your fear cometh. That's God, the wisdom of God speaking to the wicked. I stretched out my hand, you refused. You wanted none of my counsel. I'm going to laugh at you when you're in fear. When you're in torment, when you're in trembling, I know I may take, you may look, I may scare some of you, I understand that. But it says that those who are tormented in hell are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. I promise you tonight, that Lamb is not crying, He's not weeping. He is eternally angry with those in hell, and they are eternally angry with Him. And he mocks at them. He mocks at their fear. He laughs at their torment. He says, that's a, that's a vicious God. No, that's a holy God. Amen. A holy God who came into the world. Light came into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. They said, we love the sin. We don't love the Savior. That Savior has every right to mock the suffering of those in hell. The plagues of Egypt were a taunt, weren't they? Why did those specific plagues happen in Egypt? If you know the answer, you know the answer is because those were the gods of Egypt. He was attacking the gods of Egypt. He was taunting them. You want to worship a frog? Let me give you some frogs. Let your God get rid of them. You want to worship the Nile? I'll fill it with blood. Let him clean it up. I'll take your firstborn. Can he save you? He was taunting them. God taunted the Philistines. I laughed when I put this in my notes because I almost forgot to put it in there. When the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and set it by their god, Dagon, what happened to him? He kept falling over. Pick him up. Falling over. He was mocking their god. He's a statue who can't move or think. You fashion him yourself. You carry him around. I'll knock him over. That's our God. The difference between his, this message and Jonah's message is that Jonah's message was intended to bring them to repentance. Nahum's message is judgment and that without remedy. It's too late. It's too late. And God's mocking them. Now, I'm bringing judgment into the... You had your chance. Think you can stop me? Fortify your position. I'll destroy you right there. Right where you stand. You have violated my holiness. You have violated my justice. It's too late for them to repent. For everyone, someday, it will be too late to repent. And they will be destroyed, and that without remedy. Nineveh will certainly be destroyed. A prediction historically fulfilled shortly after this prophecy in 612 BC, the remains of the city would not be rediscovered until the 19th century. That's how thoroughly God brought judgment upon Nineveh. Takeaways tonight as I close. 
as we look over the book of Nahum, God is not mocked. God's not mocked. You guys know that verse, right? Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Nineveh repented of the preaching of Jonah. What did they do? Right back to their sin. Sin has a price. God will not be mocked. Christian, remember, God will not be mocked. Don't toy with sin. It has a price tag. It's a big, big price. Number two, true repentance is ongoing. True repentance is ongoing. You understand that, right? We treat salvation today like it's just a one-time decision, and I'm in. I can do whatever I want now. Nineveh tried that. A one-time repentance, and then they went back to their sin again. True repentance is ongoing. Number three, our day, like Nahum's day, is a day of judgment. Our nation's under judgment. Call it what you will. Call it global warming. I don't care. We have droughts and stuff. These are, these are judgment on our nation for our sin. The, the unbelievers can explain it away however they want to. It's judgment. We murder our babies because of inconvenience to us. Men and women consorting in ways that defy the creation of God. We've, def- we've profaned marriage. We have destroyed the family. We are under judgment. And that judgment, I don't care who's in the White House, Republican or Democrat, it's evident. Isn't it evident? And they're so confused today. So confused over things that are so easy to figure out. How do you know if you're a boy or a girl? Easy to figure out. They're confused. They're confused. We are eating the proverbial grass like an ox right now. God has said, you want your wickedness? Have it till it's coming out of your nostrils. Man, the other day I was watching Bill Maher. You guys know who he is, right? What a wicked man, Bill Maher. He was on his show talking about how ridiculous America is. He's, he, I mean, he's just slamming the woke nonsense. He's slamming the, 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 the transgender nonsense. He's making fun of the fact that people don't know what a boy is and a girl is. Even he knew there was two genders. That's how serious our judgment is. Even some of the unbelievers are getting it in their nostrils like the quail. It's like, ooh, this stinks. This makes no sense. We're under judgment. And by the way, like Nahum's day, we have a message to deliver, and we don't have a right to tinker with it. We deliver it as given. And the gospel, like Nahum's message, is condemnation on the enemies of God, but comfort for God's people. As we preach the gospel, a Christian hears it and goes, ooh, boy, that makes me feel good. And the unbeliever hears it and hates it. But we have no right to change it. Our world's under judgment, and they need to know it. Because ultimately, Christ is coming back. Judgment is coming. Everyone alive today, a hundred years from now, will be dead. Either in heaven 
or in hell. I understand it's God's choice where they go. I'm fully aware of that. It's our job to be faithful, to deliver his message to the people. Because it's through the message he calls his sheep. God uses means. God uses means to call men. So I'm not going to give you the mumbo-jumbo here and some pastors give you, if you don't go out and witness, people will die and go to hell that could have been saved. That's never going to happen. But you and I will stand before God. And we will be judged by our faithfulness to God. To the message, to the opportunities that we had to tell others about Christ, we need to be faithful messengers of Christ. Like Nahum, which we'll get to more next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this time together in the Word. I pray that you'll bless it. Oh, Lord, how we need, we need to learn about Nahum. He delivered a very striking message to very powerful people. And he didn't water it down. He didn't compromise. He told them exactly what it was. Give us the courage of Nahum, Lord, in this church. And we won't water down the message we won't downplay it. We won't, we won't pander to the itching ears of, a, of, a, of an apostate society. But that we'll be bold witnesses for Christ. Delivering condemnation to Christ's enemies and comfort to Christ's sheep. Oh Lord, make us bold as Nahum. I plead with you, Lord. We don't want to compromise the message. It's too precious a message. Christ died for the ungodly. Could there be a more comforting message than that? The just for the unjust. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I can think of no more comforting message than that. Lord, keep us from the spirit of the age, from the spirit of compromise. You will destroy your enemies. Lord, you will destroy them utterly. You destroyed Nineveh so completely, they didn't find it till the 19th century, Lord. Oh, what you'll do to the sinner one day. May we turn men into righteousness by delivering your message, your way. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to us, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for making us your sheep. Thank you for calling us. You knew who I was when I was a sinner. I didn't know you. But you knew my name. You had your mark on me. You, you came after me. Though I didn't pursue you, you pursued me. We can all say that tonight, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the free gift of your grace and mercy. You have been so free with your grace to us. So abundant in your mercy. Truly, we can say with Nahum, the Lord is a refuge, a fortress. You're good to those who trust in you. Help us to trust better, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.